If you're like me, you've discovered the amazing increasing joy that comes with an increasing exposure to the person of Jesus Christ. That's how it works. The more you are subject to the truth about the Savior, the more you are inclined to grow not only in your understanding of who he is, but in your overwhelming joy that it is to know him, to have been saved exclusively by him, and to have the privilege to represent him. And there's a lot of, not just confusion, but an immense amount of deception with regard to what it means to be a Christian. There must be a willingness to communicate truth the way Jesus communicated truth. Now, if you're dealing with a false teacher, it's time to pull out the full ammo. You know, you still want to be kind, but there's nothing wrong with calling a snake a snake. You need to at some point. The person who teaches a false gospel, the person who committedly and effectively teaches a condemnable, anathema gospel, he needs to hear the truth, and he needs to hear it with clarity. Remind him that Paul the Apostle has called the Galatians, and he's called all of Christianity to stop being bamboozled. Who tricked you, he says? Who bewitched you? unto a gospel of circumcision, a gospel of legalism, a gospel of works. He's speaking to believers, you remember, in Galatians. He's speaking to people who are saved by grace but have committed themselves to works, not for the purpose of glorifying Christ, but for the purpose of harnessing others and forcing them pharisaically into certain conduct to earn and maintain their salvation, not to act upon their salvation out of grace and mercy and compassion. And maybe you're thinking this morning, you know, sometimes I wonder about myself. Sometimes I I wonder because I I don't have much joy. Uh, You know, church can kind of feel like a cumbersome event, maybe more so than not. But at the very least, uh, whether you're in that category of at least occasionally feeling like you don't really know whether or not you're saved, you don't really have any joy in your interaction with the church, sometimes you want nothing to do with the church, and that seems to be more frequent than what a true Christian would experience. You wonder about that in yourself. At the very least, you know somebody who's in that category. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. You know probably a number of people who would profess to be Christians. And yet when you look at that litmus test that I sent out to you by email yesterday, you go down that list and you think, man, that describes... My husband, my, my wife, my kids, my, my parents, my next-door neighbor, an appearance of godliness without power. An appearance of godliness. Maybe he's really nice most of the time. You know, willing to do things for people a lot of the time. An appearance of godliness. Can talk about Jesus. Likes to read books about Jesus. Maybe even reads the Bible some, studies the Bible some, worships Jesus some. But that appearance of godliness is greatly overshadowed by a lack of power for spiritual growth and maturity. The wheels are spinning in spiritual mud, getting nowhere. Lots of heat, lots of friction, lots of activity, lots of noise. 
Nobody's going to heaven as a result. Nobody's being moved unto a greater willingness to love Jesus, to love people, to hate sin, to put away the simplest of sinful patterns. No interest, no power because no interest, no interest because no power. An appearance of godliness. Put that person in the worldliest of settings in which he will find himself very comfortable. And he'll probably talk about the Lord with no power. Very comfortable in a worldly setting, very easy for that person to bring up God, you know, for those who admire him because he's willing to bring up God with no power. Nobody's going to heaven as a result. Nobody's growing in likeness to Christ. Entrenched in those same sinful patterns and even increasing in those, adding more sinful patterns because it's a pervasive and infectious way to live. Well, this is what we see unfolding in the hearts and the lives of those to whom Jesus has delivered truth with immense clarity. And he's going to throw down this dividing line in the way, the ultimate way, that is far greater than anything that he has up to this point and thereafter. Let's look at it together. John chapter 8, verse 21. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. In our text this morning, we'll see that Jesus judges those who deny his deity. And he judges them to be eternally condemned. Point number one, eternal judgment applied for disbelief in the God-man. I want you to see the eternal judgment applied to those who refuse to believe in the deity of Jesus. Verse 21 says, So he had said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. This is not a statement to be trifled with. These are the religious leaders. These are those of the day who would 
have you and I and everyone around believe that they're actually the most spiritually mature, Jesus is saying, you're dead. You're dead. And of course, they're not going to repent. And this is yet a firm possibility in our day that there are those who so repeatedly hear the truth about the person of Christ that they eventually become so hardened of heart that they become impenetrable even by the Holy Spirit. You say, well, whose fault is that? It's theirs. They've committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's what that singularly unforgivable sin is. It's to reject the gospel. It's to have heard truth enough times that in your rejection of it that you've built up an impenetrable fortress-like callus on your heart. Your heart becomes seared over as with a hot iron. It's an impenetrable spiritual wall. What does that person have? but to continue in his spiritual, powerless legalism slash antinomianism. So he lives that life. And so the role of those who are truly in Christ is to see the church would be purified, that that person would be addressed, that his pseudo-Christianity, his false conversion, does not deceive others, because it certainly can, certainly does. So he said to them, again, that's a key term, isn't it? Again, John's reminding us that this isn't the first time that Jesus has addressed the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. I'm going away and you will seek me. The day will come. The day's coming. You're going to want to keep seeking me. And he's not saying, there's nothing here to indicate that he's saying you're going to seek me with a sincere heart. You're probably going to continue to want to follow me the way you have followed me. But you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now remember, it's critically important that we understand what he means by where he came from. Speaking there of his deity. He and he alone came down from heaven. When he speaks of that, every time you see any kind of phraseology that addresses his origin, it's dealing with his deity. I've shared with you a number of times recently that I have been dealing with Bill Schlegel. Bill was a professor in Jerusalem. Bill's a geography teacher. He's not a Bible teacher, although he has taught some things about the person of Christ. Bill has rejected the Christ of Scripture. And As you read through this passage, as you've been through John 5, John 6, on a cumulative basis, you continue to see the deity of Christ repeated time and time and time and time again. And Bill's utter, dishonest, persistent approach is to say that the deity of Jesus is never even inferred in the Bible, much less stated explicitly. And yet nearly everything you see coming from him and these people he's surrounded himself with is an effort to undo the statements of his deity in Scripture, time and time again, explaining why this doesn't mean what it says it means, saying that words don't mean what they mean. This is spiritual suicide. And if you're not in that category of saying, yeah, I totally reject the deity of Jesus, but you're in the category that says, I'm not sure, you need to be sure. You need to be certain that you're trusting in the Jesus of the Bible. Let me just say that in my own efforts in studying the book of John throughout this study, I've grown 
in my deepening conviction about the deity of Jesus. I would say in the last six to ten months, I've become increasingly better equipped to defend and communicate the deity of Jesus. You would hope so. So I say all that to say, I've got growth necessary in my own life, just as you do. If you're feeling somewhat inadequate or unfaithful uh, in terms of your ability to have explained and communicated the deity of Jesus, we all need to grow in that. That's what we're doing, right? That's why we're looking at the book of John. Back in John 7, verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. How do you get around it? He came from heaven. The Father sent him. You say, well, does he have to have been God to have been sent from heaven? Look at John 17 with me for a moment. John 17, let's start with verse 3. And this is eternal life. This is Jesus praying that high priestly prayer to the Father. This is eternal life. That's a key term right there. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You say, well, wait a minute. He's speaking to the Father, calling him the one true God. Deuteronomy 6 declares that there is one true God. Keep reading. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Who existed prior to the creation of the world? God and God alone. You say, well, are there two gods? No, there are three persons, one God. You say, that doesn't make sense to me. The reason it doesn't make sense to you if it doesn't is because we tend to anthropomorphically superimpose our understanding of our own ontology upon the Godhead. We tend to force our understanding of our existence upon the Godhead. We want him to only be one person because we each are only one person person. So therefore, he can only be one person. John MacArthur has said about Arminians that God created them in his image, and they've been returning the favor ever since. And that's so often what the unregenerate pseudo-Christian who feigns belief in the Jesus of the Bible will do. He will attempt to superimpose his own ontology upon the Godhead. I am one person, therefore he can only be one person. And yet Jesus has made it clear. There is one true God, and I am of that Godhead in that I existed before the world was created. Colossians 1 tells us he created the world, and he sustains it. So there is an eternal judgment I would encourage you, if you're on the scale of 1 to 10 in your devotion to an understanding of the deity of Jesus, if on that scale of 1 to 10, you're somewhere around a 2 or 3, bump it up. 
force yourself into a devotion of understanding that there is an eternal judgment applied for disbelief in the God-man, for disbelief in the deity of Jesus. Let me say it this way. There is an eternal judgment applied for believing in Jesus minus his deity. This is no small thing. It's critical to your salvation. You say, I never thought about it before. Start now and don't stop. You say, well, are you saying, surely you're not saying that I'm not a Christian if I didn't believe in this when I got here this morning. Are you looking at me? Yes, I am. I couldn't be more loving to you than making that statement to you. Now, if you would receive that humbly, as we see this truth repeatedly in Scripture, what should be happening is you're saying things like, well, that makes a whole lot of sense then, because look at my life. Look at my spiritually mud, wheel-spinning life, where I've spent so much time trying to do things that are spiritually noble, and I can't get any traction. I have an appearance of godliness without power. That explains everything. I've rejected the Jesus of the Bible. It should be encouraging to you. Maybe God is saving you in this very moment. Wouldn't that be awesome? Eternally amazing. Gracious of the God of heaven that he uses faithful communicators of God's truth to change eternally the heart and life and destiny of those who will repent and believe in the true Jesus of the Bible. Back to John 7, where I am, you cannot come. He has said this before, verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? a warning. A little longer. It's not a warning to the people he's speaking directly to. It's a warning to those who are listening. I'm going to be here with you a little while longer. So there is hope. Don't wait till it's too late. He's saying to those who are listening in, for you guys that I'm speaking directly to, it's too late. A little longer, I will be with you, and then I'm going to him who sent me. I'm going back to heaven. At that point, it will be too late. You cannot come where I'm going. And they, of course, all look at each other and say, what in the world is he talking about? As if he hasn't been telling them. It's not that he's been telling them that he would leave them, but that they should know where he is from. He's been clear about the fact that the Father sent him from heaven. He is the Son of God, ontologically being the Son of God. He is God. Verse 21, so he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 22, so the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Back to John 17, verse 14. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, 
just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So he speaks about those who are of the world. They display an imprint of the world. They think with worldly thinking. John tells us in 1 John to separate ourselves from the world. He makes a very clear and stark line between those who do things of the world and those who don't do things of the world. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus even prays for them. He prays for the elect. He prays for his sheep. He does not pray that they would be removed from the world, but as they are in the world, they would not be of the world. They are not of the world. Protect them. Protect them from the world, but use them in the world, that others would be changed from the state of being of the world, possessed by the world, possessed with worldly thinking, committed to that which is of the world. Why? Because the certain result of those who are of the world is that they will experience eternal torment. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am. Stop there. Unless you believe I am. This is ego a me. This is the New Testament way to say Yahweh. We get further into chapter 8, and we're moving further and further toward this avalanche-like reality that Jesus' deity is going to be on display, and we get to verse 58, and there at the end, we're creeping up on that. You've seen a couple of I am statements from Jesus at this point, but here it's just I am. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I am what? God. Yahweh. See that? So this is not a secondary issue. This is a primary issue. You say, well, what are the issues over which we must disfellowship with religious groups? This is one of them. You say, are you telling me I need to disfellowship with people who don't believe this? Well, I'm saying you need to treat them as an unbeliever. You need to love them. You shouldn't affirm their faith in Christ. You can't do that. That would be unloving. But you certainly must love them in such a way that would declare this distinction. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. He speaks of those who are in Christ. They're not of the world. They're of Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is where Paul tells us that we were sons of wrath, children of wrath, born into that condition. Now think of it, anybody who's born into that condition and is in that condition doesn't want to believe and really doesn't have the spiritual ability to believe that he is not in that spiritual condition. His spiritual condition is the problem that leads to his inability to believe rightly about his spiritual condition. Anytime you hear somebody say, well, I've really studied the doctrine of total depravity and I don't believe it, that's a person who's yet totally depraved. He doesn't want to believe what the Bible says about him because he's totally depraved. So he refuses to believe that about himself. He wants to believe that he somehow 
has achieved a better spiritual condition because he wasn't actually born into a totally depraved spiritual condition. Born with a clean slate. It's Pelagianism. The idea that one somehow has achieved God's pleasure in his own doing because God established a level playing field from the beginning such that anyone could earn that. Verse 25 in our text says, So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, the beginning of his earthly Jewish ministry, two and a half years prior to this moment. He's been displaying and communicating that he is from the Father, sent by the Father. Verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. You remember back in chapter 7, verse 24, he says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is his effort to communicate to them. You're judging me. Jesus is talking about the Pharisees' judgment of him based on appearances. He's a man. He appears to be a man because he is a man, but he doesn't appear to be God in the flesh, right? Because he's a man. And so he's communicating to them, you've been judging me based on what you know about my appearance. Stop it. Judge with right judgment. It's a break in the argument where he explains what the problem is. You're not thinking rightly. You're judging with wrong judgment. He's already said that you're attempting to do what you do by the flesh. You judge by the flesh, which is no help at all. Back in verse 14 of chapter 8, Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. See, that's the problem. You don't know where I come from. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. At this point, he's not judging anyone. He's certainly not judging by the flesh. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So he's saying a couple things there. One, I don't judge by the flesh like you. You judge by the flesh. But he's also saying my judgment is not some sort of arbitrary man-made in my humanity judgment. It is judgment that is parallel with, congruous with, reflective of the Father's judgment. We think the same. I subject myself to him in the incarnation, I being God in eternity past, before the existence of the world, in the collective, unified, harmonious wisdom of the Godhead, I and the Father and the Son have determined that I would subject myself in sonship to Him, and that's what I've done. And therefore, I've set my deified prerogatives aside partially, and in doing so, I can display before you what it looks like to submit to and trust and obey the Father with that deified prerogative temporarily set aside. That should have been moving to them, but instead they chose to judge by appearances. Back in John 7, verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. They, in their fleshly judgment, are concisely described in that their works are evil. You hate me. The world hates 
me. The world hates those who know me. It's a hatred for the true Christ. And those, think of it, those who hate the true Christ want to create a new Christ. You know, one that's easy to walk with, one that's easy to submit to, easy to follow, one that doesn't call a person to holiness, doesn't call a person to faithfulness, doesn't call a person to service. Verse 27 in our text says, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Why? How's that possible? How in the world, after John chapter 5, is it possible that they don't know he's been speaking to them about the Father? Let's look at John 5, verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now. I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is himself doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father, the Father, the Father, the Father, the Father. Keep reading all the way through verse 30. It's all about the Father. In fact, verse 30 says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. How in the world did they not know he was speaking about the Father? Well, John 5 verse 40 tells us, You search the Scriptures. Now listen, you know people like this. I mean, they'll rifle through their Bible or their iPhone or whatever. And the standard practice, the impetus, the goal is to pit truth against truth they don't like. And it's not always for the purpose of saying, look, this in the Bible contradicts this in the Bible. That's not usually really the purpose. The purpose is to water down and eliminate the truth they don't like by hyper-applying truth they do like, as if there are options. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. See that? They think that in their searching and their doing and their working that they've earned eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you don't know me. All this arduous effort to really hunker down and get into the details of the Scripture. This, friends, is the basis of what's known as liberal theology. You've heard that phrase before. It's not a general term. The idea of liberal theology is the person who does what he wants with the Bible. It's alive and well amongst those who liberally pick and choose what they like and do away with what they don't. 
In fact, they juxtapose uh, that which they like against that which they don't like so as to do away with what they don't like so that they're not subject to it. It is they, the Scriptures, that bear witness about me. Now listen, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, brothers and sisters, it's easy for you and me to be critical of the Pharisees, and we should. This is their fault. But what about you, and especially what about that person that you love, that you know, professes to know Christ, and rather than coming to the Christ of the Bible, he refuses to come to the Christ of the Bible, and he dissects, really he pulls out that which he doesn't like in the Bible, he does away with his deity, and he certainly does away with his sovereignty. It is wrong, it is wrong to assume that someone who rejects the deity and the sovereignty of Jesus but embraces a person named Jesus, it is wrong and unloving to affirm that person as someone who legitimately trusts Jesus but just needs some help. He's doing exactly what the Pharisees did. Eternal judgment is applied to them because of their persistent rejection of the true Jesus. Their persistent rejection of the true Jesus has certainly resulted in a self-inflicted eternal judgment. Look at John 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You see the significance of the doctrine of sovereign grace? Ultimately, those who reject the truth that no one comes to the Son lest the Father bring him. That is a person who, if he persists in that false teaching, is not regenerate. He does not have eternal life. And the result, verse 66... After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So there's this willful commitment to walk with him so long as they don't hear anything they don't like. But you can see how the group gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Well, point two, I want you to see eternal knowledge imparted with evidence of the God-man. Eternal knowledge imparted with evidence of the God-man. This is pretty simple. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Again, there's no He there in the Greek. You will know that I am. Say it this way, you will know that I am Yahweh. That's the idea. You will know that I am when you have lifted up the Son. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. You will begin to recognize that I am from the Father, that the Father sent me, that I came from heaven. 
John 12, 34 says, So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? What does that mean? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light... Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So Jesus is imparting the knowledge of his deity. And there are those who acknowledge his deity. They, you could say, believe that he is God. The Son of Man is lifted up. The Son of Man is exalted. The Son of Man is on display. Meaning God incarnate. That's what the Son of Man means that he is human, and he refers to himself as the Son of Man. He's referring to his humanity, but he is lifted up. He will be lifted up on the cross. He will be lifted up into heaven. When you see all of that unfold, you will further and more completely believe. But believe today, while today is still today, believe in the light so that you would become sons of light. And what is an indication that you need to do that, that you're walking in darkness, right? The person who has unrepentant patterns of sin that despite the fact he has no power over them. He's really good at the appearance of godliness, but he's not walking in the light. Jesus says, become sons of light. Believe in me, the true me. Then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as my father taught me. How did the father teach him? Did the Father teach him in heaven? He didn't need to learn anything in heaven. His omniscience was not yet divested temporarily. This somehow took place during his 27-year ministry preparation time. In his devotion to the Old Testament Scripture, he was growing in wisdom and stature. It seems odd. He wrote the Bible. It's his word. And yet, in his incarnation, he emptied himself, becoming like Man, yet without sin. John 7.15 says, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. This is, again, one of those believer slash unbeliever separating devices. The person who has God recognizes the teaching of God. You remember the first time you heard Reformed theology and you either were repulsed or you realized, this is in the Bible. I didn't know anybody actually taught this. When you were hearing and being taught truth the truth that was used in the 1500s to draw out the remnant that the Roman Catholic Church would be on display as the false church. Remember when you first heard the doctrines of grace and, and it, resonated, it hurt, <laughs> but it resonated with your heart and you said, I can't deny this. This is difficult, but I see it and I want to be changed by it. I, I want to communicate it. I want to rest in it. Or maybe that wasn't you. You know, maybe it was a few months. You know, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate my husband. I hate it. My husband loves it. I hate him. I hate it all. Admit it. Some of you were there. Or maybe it was your wife, guys. Some of you it was. 
But either way, when God saved you, you loved teaching that truly reflects the person of God. You still do, even though it still hurts. hurts me too. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me, verse 29, is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I came to do his will. He says it over and over. I came not to do my own will, but his. Even in praying before he goes to the cross, Lord, <laughs> can you picture it? Lord, take this cup from me, please. You know, really don't want you to turn your back on me. I really don't want there to be enmity between you and me. I, I really don't want to be forsaken by my Father. Please take this cup of wrath from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, what kind of belief is this? It's the kind of belief that provides an appearance of salvation without salvation. It's the kind of belief that provides an appearance of salvation without that salvation. And next week, we'll look more closely at what we are to do with that person who has that appearance of salvation when we look at the eternal freedom provided to those who abide in his truth. Father, we are grateful to rest in the joy that it is to know the God-man Lord, we ask for your glory to be on display now as we sing to Jesus, as we worship him, as we abide in his word, that through the, the knowledge imparted to those who would believe in it of the evidence of the God-man, that God came in the flesh, Lord, we believe that as you have imparted that knowledge, you, by your grace, will display that walking with the God-man, abiding in his word, trusting in him, obeying all his commands is a display of that eternal freedom. We ask this in his name. Amen.